Michio Kaku is a physicist of Japanese descent whose latest book is called The God Equation. Michael Barclay talks to Michio about his life and work and about his hero, Albert Einstein. I think it's fairly safe to say that Dr. Michio Kaku is the only guest we've had on Private Passions who built a particle accelerator in their garage while still in high school. Bearing that in mind, it's not a huge surprise that he went on to become one of the world's leading theoretical physicists, the co-founder of string theory in the 1970s and a professor at the City University of New York. He's also a great science communicator, so alongside his hundreds of scientific papers, he's written best-selling popular science books and appears regularly on television and radio all over the world. His latest book, The God Equation, describes his quest to continue Einstein's search for a theory of everything. Having read your latest book, Michio, my understanding is that, in the most basic terms, string theory aims to unite the very, very big forces, such as gravity and black holes, with the very, very small subatomic particles of quantum mechanics, all into a single, grand, unified theory of everything. Is that right, or is that hopelessly off-centre? Well, I think you got it. You see, all of biology can be expressed in the language of chemistry. All of chemistry, in turn, can be expressed in the language of physics. All of physics, in turn, can be expressed in the terms of the very big, which is relativity, which, of course, is black holes in the Big Bang, and also the quantum theory, which gives us lasers and transistors and the computer revolution. But the left hand and the right hand of God Don't talk to each other. They're based on different mathematics, different principles. They hate each other. So why should Mother Nature, at a fundamental level, have a left hand and a right hand? They don't talk to each other. And that's where the theory of everything comes in. And, of course, the greatest philosophers and thinkers of time, going back to the Greeks, they've asked a simple question. Is there a simple paradigm, a principle, a theme that summarizes this entire universe of ours. Pythagoras thought it was music. He saw a lyre string one day, and Pythagoras plunked it and realized that the longer the string, the lower the note. And he went to a blacksmith's shop, and he saw a sword. The longer the sword, the lower the note it made when you banged on the sword. And then he said, aha, it's the language of music, which is mathematics. The mathematics of resonances, that is the fundamental basis of music, which in turn is the basis of all physical reality. The only paradigm that can summarize the vast diversity of everything we see around the universe. Well, unfortunately, the Roman Empire fell apart, and for a thousand years we had witchcraft and magic, and all sorts of crazy superstitions until the coming of Newtonian mechanics and the coming of Einstein. Now we do realize that music, the music of Pythagoras, could be the missing paradigm that eluded scientists for 2,000 years. So if I had a supermicroscope and could look at an electron, it's not a dot at all. It's actually a rubber band. And when you twang the rubber band, it changes a note. 
And so instead of calling it an electron, you call it a neutrino. You twang it again, it vibrates at a different frequency, and you call it a quark. In fact, all the subatomic particles are nothing but musical notes on a vibrating string. So what is physics? Physics is the harmonies. The harmonies you can write on these tiny little vibrating strings. What is chemistry? Chemistry is the melodies, the melodies you can play when the strings bump into each other. What is the universe? The universe is a symphony, a symphony of vibrating strings. And then what is the mind of God that Albert Einstein wrote about so eloquently for the last 30 years of his life? The mind of God is cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. That, we think, is the mind of God. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by the enormity of the ideas you're dealing with and the essence of infinity? Well, yes. Every physicist has to grapple with the question, how big is the universe anyway? And uh, we realize that there are two philosophies you can take about this. The first is the Copernican philosophy, which says the universe is infinite and we're nothing. We're nothing but specks of dust. That's all we are. Nothing but specks of dust on this infinite ocean of galaxies and stars. And we're nothing. But the other principle, which is also scientifically valid, is called the anthropic principle, which says, no, consciousness Human beings that think, that feel, that are conscious, we are rare, extremely rare throughout the universe. How many intelligent beings are there in the galaxy? Maybe we're the only ones. And so the anthropic principle says the opposite. We are exceedingly rare. Consciousness and the ingredients of consciousness, that is organic chemicals and DNA and things like that, are so rare, perhaps intelligent life in the universe is extremely rare. And so we have two diametrically opposed philosophies of the universe itself. One, we are nothing but dust in a gigantic universe that's uncaring. And the other one is that, no, we are precious. The consciousness, perhaps, may be even unique to this earth of ours. And we have to cherish it as a consequence. You called your book The God Equation. And so that begs the question whether there's room for a creator God in string theory, which might suggest that he's the greatest composer of all time. <laughs> well, Einstein believed in a God. However, it was not the personal God that you prayed to for that bicycle at Christmas time, or you hope that you can smite the Philistines in the next battle. No, he didn't believe in a personal God. He believed in the God of order, simplicity, harmony, beauty. The universe is gorgeous. The universe didn't have to be this way. It could have been chaotic. It could have been random. It could have been this random mist of subatomic particles that don't do anything at all, but just blow with the wind. But here we are, intelligent, conscious beings that can contemplate the whole question of existence and the universe itself. That, he thought, was not an accident. So he believed in the God of Spinoza. And he thought of himself as a little boy, walking into this vast library, this huge library of books called the universe. And all he could do was open the first book, first chapter, first page, and read the first few sentences of that book. That's how he viewed the universe. So uh, do you subscribe to this view of if there is a God, that this is the kind of God there is? 
That's right, I do. And it was Galileo who took it even one step farther and said, uh, first of all, what is the purpose of science? The purpose of science is to determine how the heavens go. What is the purpose of religion? The purpose of religion is to determine how to go to heaven. So you see, science is about natural law, about how the heavens go. But religion is about ethics, how to go to heaven, how to be a good person, how to love your neighbor. That's fine. They're complementary until one day someone from the sciences begins to pontificate about ethics or when somebody who's religious begins to pontificate about natural law. That's when we get into trouble. But as long as we keep these two domains separate but complementary, there's no problem at all. that music, I'm constantly reminded of the fact that, well, during the Vietnam War, I was in the infantry. I was in the United States infantry for two years, and I fired all the machine guns and the various um, military hardware of the United States infantry, and I had to deal with the question of life and death because my life was on the line. GIs were dying every single day, and I said to myself, am I prepared to die, that in my head I had all these equations and all these theories and all these dreams and hopes, and yet I realized that just one bullet could end everything. And then one day they found too much sugar in my blood, and I was given a discharge, a medical discharge, and all of a sudden I had my life back. And it was as if there was a voice up there saying, I've given you back your life that in some sense, you were supposed to die. You were supposed to die in some nameless hill in Vietnam, and I'm giving you back your life. Do something. Do something about it. And I realized that perhaps I owe society something. And that's when I, when I hear the, the martial air by Purcell. I'm reminded of the fact that, yes, that I was almost in the military to be assigned to fight on some nameless hill in Vietnam, but I have my life back, that I should do something with it. And that's what I feel when I hear Purcell. Day. It's 
has recorded the Psalms from the authorised version of the Bible. Today we hear Jeremy reading Psalm 109. Hold not thy peace, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They compass me about also with words of hatred, and fought against me without a cause. For my love they are my adversaries, but I give myself unto prayer. And they have rewarded me evil for good, and hatred for my love. Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, Let him be condemned, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds, and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let the extortioner catch all that he hath, and let the strangers spoil his labour. Let there be none to extend mercy unto him, neither let there be any to favour his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out, 
Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered with the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth, because that he remembered not to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come unto him. As he delighted not in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothes himself with cursing, like as with his garment, so let it come into his bowels like water, and like oil into his bones. Let it be unto him as the garment which covereth him, and for a girdle wherewith he is girded continually. Let this be the reward of mine adversaries from the Lord, and of them that speak evil against my soul. But do thou for me, O God the Lord, for thy name's sake, because thy mercy is good, deliver thou me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it declineth. I am tossed up and down as the locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh faileth in fatness. I became also a reproach unto them. When they looked upon me, they shaked their heads. Help me, O Lord my God, O save me according to thy mercy, that they may know that this is thy hand, that thou, Lord, hast done it. Let them curse, but bless thou. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let thy servant rejoice. Let mine adversaries be clothed with shame, and let them cover themselves with their own confusion as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth, yea, I will praise him among the multitude, for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor.
Judy Gentis have produced a series of talks about Bible characters. Today, Judy tells the story of Mary and her attitude to her sister, Martha. There's a place for work and a place for play. When you work, don't play, and when you play, don't work. It may seem simplistic, but I know some people who don't understand this. They're either all work or all play. Take my sister Martha, for example. She never stops working. I think she even feels guilty if she sits down to take a break. Why? I wasn't sure then. I assumed she felt valued that way. Or maybe it was easier to serve than to socialise. I had just always accepted that that was the way she was. I don't want to sound like I'm rounding on my sister because generally we get along quite well. We're just different. She likes running around. I don't particularly. I'm realistic about things that need to be attended to. I just don't want to spend my entire life running around them. We've been friends with a rabbi for some years. His name is Jesus. He's quite famous now, but we were friends with him when he and his brothers and sisters were children with us. We live in Bethany and they lived in Nazareth. They used to come over and stay with us each year when they were on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover feast because it was only three kilometers away. So my brother, Lazarus, and my sister Mary and myself used to play with Jesus and his brothers and sisters every time they came to stay with us. Since he's so famous now, people often ask me what he's really like. Well, he was a normal boy, just like all the other boys. He was easy to be around, and what I remember about those times was he was so gentle and kind. The other boys weren't always that way. Being involved in war games and playing at hunting or fighting with wooden swords and bows and arrows... You know, boy stuff. But Jesus wasn't like that. He wasn't against it. He just didn't join in with them. Also, he seemed to know things that none of us knew, but he never made a fuss about it. It wasn't exactly the things he said. It's kind of hard to describe. But anyway, he was my favourite in Joseph and Mary's family. So here we are, adults now, but the friendship with Lazarus, Martha and myself still continues. 
One day, he was going through Bethany and was on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover again. So he stopped with all the people who were traveling with him. We didn't know he was coming, but it wasn't a problem because that's what friends are for. And we were really happy to see him. We had always got enough for hospitality. It's really important in our culture. This time, though, there was something different about Jesus, something I'd never noticed before. It had probably always been there. I just didn't see it. You remember earlier I said he seemed to know things that nobody else knew? Well, now he was telling us those things. Everyone stopped what they were doing to listen to him when he began to teach, including myself. Everyone except Martha. Whilst it was true that we had a houseful to feed, I didn't really notice it. Martha was busy making space for the people who were coming in to hear him, moving things around, picking up stuff, anything in the way. Then she'd run off to the kitchen and start kneading the dough for baking bread and stoking up the fire and cooking the meal and serving drinks and making sure everybody had everything they needed. Me? I sat at Jesus' feet, not wanting to miss a single word. I knew it was something really, really important. And at that moment, nothing else mattered. I must admit... I didn't even really notice my, my sister Martha's irritation at me sitting and listening to Jesus. She wanted me to stop listening and go and help her with the preparations. Suddenly, she burst into the room while we were all listening, interrupted Jesus in full flow and yelled out, Lord, do you not even care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to come and help me. After a few moments of stunned silence, he gave an answer that surprised us all, including me. I had expected him to agree with her and send me off to help her, but that's not what he said. Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Well, my sister was speechless. That didn't happen very often. Not knowing how to reply to Jesus' rebuke, she started by looking really angry. And then her expression changed and the scowl disappeared and her face turned peaceful. I'll never forget how she calmly folded the towel that was around her waist and sat down quietly and began to listen. Well, like I said, my sister and I always got on fairly well despite her, her workaholic tendencies. I'm not lazy, but we both learned a great lesson that day. When God speaks into your heart, stop everything and listen to every word. to help each other walk the mile 
John Sorensen is Church of Scotland Minister in Greenock. Alan is a regular contributor to Pause for Thought on Radio 2. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his shorter God Spots. And today he has one on roadmaps. Hmm, you know, I reckon not everything in life is as useful as it seems. I mean, for example, take a roadmap. A roadmap tells you lots and lots of things. Except how to refold it. Ever noticed that, eh? So how useful are we then? Maybe not as useful as we seem. For example, if you want to be a friend to someone today, don't be like a roadmap and just tell them what they ought to do. Suggest how they might do it. Maybe even give them a hand. Ubiquitous blessings to you. As I pass along If I can cheer somebody With a word or a song If I can show some traveler He's going wrong Then my living shall not be in vain. Then my living shall not be in vain. Then my living shall not be in vain. If I can help. Somebody, as I pass along, then my living shall not be in vain. Then my living shall not be in vain. Then my living shall not be in vain. If I can help somebody as I pass along, then my living shall not be in vain. Here below, 
Kiss him. 